Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Redheaded Preacher podcast. It's for Sunday, July 11th, 2021. I'm Richard Lanford, the Redheaded Preacher of St. Peter's United Church of Christ in Skokie, an open and affirming congregation within the United Church of Christ. This Sunday, the sermon doesn't have a title, um, and I won't go into why. It was a matter of deadlines, and uh, I'm fine with that. It's once in a while. It's okay. Um, the sermon has two points. I'm preaching out of Mark 6, primarily. And Mark 6, beginning at verse 14, is the gospel reading. Um, and there is a Hebrew scriptures reading from 2 Samuel 6 about uh, King David and uh, his first wife, Michael, or Michal, at the end. Um, so, I, I'm i kind of happy with this. I hope you are, too, that you'll be fed by listening to it, that you'll be encouraged and you, your faith strengthened. Our lector today is going to be Andre Glockner. You, you may have access to something that says Marsha Hilliard. That's his wife. She is not able to be the lector, so they switched. And uh, without any further speaking from me, you'll hear more from me in a few moments after the readings, let us move into the podcast itself. Today's first reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and then part of verse 12 verse 19. As we heard last Sunday, David is now Israel and Judah's king. The capital is Jerusalem, and having lost the Ark of the Covenant to another power earlier, it is now in Israeli possession, but has to be taken to the city of David along with David himself. But that alone is not the whole story. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David and all the people with him set out and went from Balae Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. They carried the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinabad, which was on a hill. Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadad, were driving the new cart of the Ark of God and Ahio went in front of the ark. David and all the house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all their might, their songs, their lyres and harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. It was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obedabon and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God to the house of Obedabon, the city of David with rejoicing. And then those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six paces. He sacrificed an ox and a fatling. David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. They brought in the ark of the Lord 
and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and offerings of well-being before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and offerings of well-being, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed food among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, to each a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. Then all the people went back to their homes. This ends the reading from 2 Samuel. Our next and final reading is our gospel. It comes from Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. It follows after Jesus sent the disciples out two by two on a preaching mission and authority over the unclean spirits. They returned, having cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying John the baptizer had been raised from the dead, and for this reason these powers are at work in him. But others said, it is Elijah, and others said, it is a prophet, and one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you, even half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? She replied, the head of John the baptizer. Immediately she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the baptizer on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went, beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about it, they came, took his body, and laid it in a tomb. Here ends the reading of the gospel and the scriptures for this morning's service. May God grant us a wise understanding of this, the word of God, for the people of God. That's how to pray. Praying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
What did you think of the stories we just heard Andre read? David enjoys literally a parade of success with jumping and dancing and serious orchestration all around. It was truly a high point for him, for in bringing the ark to Jerusalem, which he'd made his capital city in last Sunday's readings, he as king centralized the power and significance of the holy city. It was now the military, political, and spiritual capital of Israel. Then, after such glory and fun, uh, the family did not dig him so much. Caddy, sarcastic remarks from his first wife, Michael, had the effect of cutting her off from David, separating for good the royal lines of Saul and David. But let us not dismiss her for being jealous, critical of his public lack of modesty, or speaking her mind. Michael has her own sad story to tell of heartbreak. You know, it's not always easy when kings and heroes come home. Then we have a much sadder tale from the Gospel according to Mark. Widely regarded as the earliest of the four Gospels to be written, it's a rich text with a lot of sermon possibilities. What's in here for you and me? Let's dig in. The story that begins our passage takes us to a flashback in the court of King Herod Antipas. He was not Herod the Great, who reigned in the time when Jesus was born. This is one of his sons who had a quadrant of that kingdom of Caesar's empire. He is not Herod the Great, as I said, and he's not exactly a king either. He was the tetrarch of Galilee, and so it would only be by courtesy he would be called a king. In fact, written as this was in the middle of the first century A.D. or a bit later, Mark calling him king could very well be ironic or sarcastic. You see, under Herodias, his wife, under her influence, Herod appealed for the title king in A.D. 39, and for that appeal he was banished. Secondly, Herod's affair with his sister-in-law whom he had at this time married, was widely known. Indeed, the affair had led Herod to divorce his first wife, whose father, a king, later went to war with Herod over that issue and defeated him. John's denunciation of the affair with Herod over the issue, uh, he said this is unlawful. Besides being adultery, according to Leviticus 7, 18, and 20, it violated incest prohibitions. John's denunciation was not only an attack against Herod's adultery and incest, but Herod could have perceived this as a political threat, too, given the political ramifications that later did lead to that major military defeat. Interestingly enough, the first century Jewish historian Josephus claimed that many viewed Herod's humiliation in that war with his ex-father-in-law as divine judgment for executing John. So you and I have this larger context, including of the future, with which to listen to the story, to think about Herod and the consequences of his actions. And the story we have today, the story we have this morning, like I said, can be looked at more than one way. And my plan is to lift up two. First, given the background and future of this fellow, we know that he holds power in Galilee. 
And together with Herodias, they are, a, show, are showing brazen contempt for the Jewish law, and they seem like the power couple of the region. Herod is a bit of a complicated guy. Uh, we know that although he put John the Baptist in a fortress prison called Machaerus, about five miles east of the Dead Sea, to shut him up and to punish him for his words of judgment, uh, Herod had mixed feelings and thoughts about him. Let's review. Herodias, the wife, held a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. Not so with Herod. Mark records, Herod feared John, and knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed and yet liked to listen to him. A few verses later, after Herodias and her here unnamed daughter demanded his head, the gospel tells us the king was deeply grieved. But this could have been expected. Perhaps you missed it, but because I've missed it the first time or two reading through the passage. But after referring to both Herodias's hatred and Herod's protection, Mark said, but an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet. An opportunity? For whom? For Herod to protect him some more? Or for Herodias to get John eliminated from their lives for good? Yeah, the wife, I think. She knows her husband well and has a plan. Now, the Bible does have earthy parts to it, but it does not call attention to them very much. If we listen behind the lines, we might imagine Herod's um, aroused temperament after the dance. Although scholars dispute what the daughter's age could be, uh, my my, this one commentary that I consulted pulls no punches. Quote, On any reading, Herod's vulgarity is perverse. After taking his brother's wife, he lusts after his wife's daughter, although Mark calls her his daughter. So this was meant to be an erotic type of dance, affecting the mood and words of Herod in response. He wants to please her in front of the guests, so he tells her to say whatever she wants and he will give it to her. In fact, he makes her this promise the second time with a vow. He makes this promise twice before everyone. Confab with the mom who wants John dead, who set this up, I think, before just this moment, because she knew Herod well. So she tells her daughter what to ask for, the John the Baptist. And this, the daughter, elsewhere dubbed Salome, almost provocatively adds for effect on a platter. Herodias wins. Herod saves face and therefore wins. Herod gave in, and so he loses. And John, of course, loses. Aside from this bloody, tawdry drama, we see power politics in conflict with the people of faith and righteousness. Empire, as Walter Brueggemann terms the system and exercise of domination within which we often live. Uh, empire will have no mercy on God's people when they speak truth to power too loudly, too effectively, too many times. Lamar Williamson, Jr. sums this first message up well. He wrote, Christians should not be surprised then 
when, despite some signs of positive inclination or, or response, they are crushed by political and religious power structures all the same. The Gospels never promise us a rose garden, and least of all does the Gospel of Mark nourish any hopes for easy discipleship. In Mark, the court of Herod, like the Sanhedrin and Pilate's court, is viewed with the cold eye of realism. The ruler's good intentions are engulfed by ambition, fear, envy, and compromise. God's faithful witness becomes a victim. One way to read the passage, then, is in terms of success and significance. Success, as the world measures it, is seen in the court of Herod. There we find the chief of state and the advisors, the military commanders, the leading people of the country at a banquet on a king's birthday. They are the ones who can afford leisure and pleasure. They can get what they want when they want it. He continues, Williamson, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, alone in his cell, doomed and helpless to save his life, appears in shocking contrast to the glitter of the successful people of his time. Our minds, Williamson thinks, they're perpetually and perversely fascinated by the wealth and power and intrigue of Herod's court or those like it in our day. Yet the significance of the text, he says, lies in the death of that starkly simple prophet in Herod's prison. The gospel here invites us to look closely at success and then to choose significance as we follow Jesus on the way. That's an end of a quote from Lamar Williamson. So let us take from the story at large, not love empire, as it will not long allow the free and liberating voices of Christ's righteous, loving age and the messengers thereof. Bearing witness, serving love and justice and peace will cost us, but it is the right decision, the opposite of Herod's. And that leads me to the second way we can look at the story and find another uh, avenue to find meaning in it for us. It's related to the first, but focuses more on Herod Antipas and what was going on inside of him. He was, as one person said, engaging in the dance of death. So may we dance it, perhaps unknowingly too. Herod is so tragically flawed and messed up that he cannot escape from his own misdeeds. He is his own worst enemy. He knows something is wrong, but he does it anyway, like committing adultery with and then marrying his brother's wife. We heard from Josephus how that and John's murder rebounded violently on him and his people. His order to execute John goes against what Herod himself feels about this special case. He was fascinated by the man, perplexed. He at once fears him, but he fears him because he knows that he is a righteous and holy man. He protects John. He loves to listen to him, even though he's perplexed by what he says. And when he hears that his, the prize his daughter desires is his head, he is deeply grieved. It almost sounds like an echo of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
deeply grieved. But I would not compare the two and say, oh, they're about the same. Herod is grieved, but powerless. That is the dance of death. That is the dance you or I step when we grieve over our decisions or actions, but seem powerless to change them. We're doing a dance, and we cannot get the band leader to change the tune. Herod had heard about Jesus, but had never met him. By the time he does, later in the story, Herod is still dancing this dance. Again, again, he cannot bring himself to call a halt to Jesus' execution. Passes him along, passes the buck, as it were. I think this story, this way to look at the story, is a call to conversion. We understand that our sinful behavior or trap situations uh, are not biologically determined, culturally required, or morally necessary. We can choose to do something positive about our grieving, seeming powerlessness. We can choose to do a right thing, come what may. Some of us face circumstances uh, at work, maybe, where we go along to get along, we're not really crazy about it, but then something finally crosses the line. Someone with integrity and honor, with faith perhaps, is needed to step up and out and try to right the ship and point out, this is, we can't do this, this is the wrong way, or something like that, to stand against empire, if that's what is needed. And, that, and then to stop the dance of death. Stop grieving over decisions or actions and believe ourselves and believe ourselves powerless to change them when we are not necessarily powerless to change them. For all we know, choosing not to be voiceless or powerless could lead to a Spartacus moment. You learn you're not alone at all, after all. Unlike Herod, have you ever made a vow and then realized the right thing to do was to go back on it and go back on it publicly if that was appropriate? That's one way of getting out of a dance of death and stepping onto the risky dance of life. Have you ever realized that you hurt someone badly or a group of people and although you're very sorry about that later, and see, and you recognize how you're accountable for hurting them, you let it slide? That's too long ago. But that's a dancing of death at another level. Coming forward to acknowledge our hurting them, our asking for forgiveness, and showing them you, we are showing that we are not really that person anymore because we're taking responsibility, whereas before we would let it slide. That's getting out of a dance of death and into a liberating dance of life and courage. We are all fallible. Hormones switched on can lead us into making some dumb or unfortunate choices. Empire will threaten us or try to buy our integrity. Let us not stay stuck in our trough of resigned fallibility. There we lead a dance of death which leads to death in more ways than one. Instead, let us try to catch ourselves, backtrack if need be, 
Be sensitive to what God is telling you or telling me what God wants us to do and step out of that grief plus assumed powerlessness dance. Even if, like John, we go to our graves for doing the right thing when no one else will, let us go there in faith and hope, dancing the dance of resurrection life. Amen. May this sermon have been a blessing to you since we did not begin the intro uh, with a word of prayer. I decided to include the Lord's Prayer once again, introducing uh, the segue into our sermon in the service on July 11th. Our next sermon will be July 18th. I think that's the eighth Sunday after Pentecost. I don't know what the scriptures are in the lectionary. There's no guarantee that I will follow them. I was raised in a congregational church with a minister who said that he never followed the lectionary. So as he was a mentor to me, I thought, well, that's the way to go, you know. Be independent. Who are these people to put this together anyway? But I later on in my actual ministry career, you know, because I wasn't yet then, I saw the value in it. So I do use the lectionary every year, at least through parts of it. I think I talked about this last week, so I'll stop talking about it. But in the summer, I give myself freedom to depart from it, if, uh, like I did in June with those three messages about the, how do we know what God wants us to do. So I can't tell you what next week's message is going to be about. You'll have to tune in and find out. And until then, may God bless your week. Amen. Bye.